entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where, uh, where I have not sowed and gathered where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he who has an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, we're continuing on with this uh, very famous parable. And uh, it's famous in in the sense that uh, it is from this parable that we get the English word uh, 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 talents, which has come to mean abilities. Uh, uh, Perhaps a lot of us have talents in some way, uh, cooking or building or uh, music or some talent or other. There's all sorts of talents, aren't there? Uh, but this this is where the old English word for talent came from. But it was originally had to do with uh, the idea of a, a degree of money, a certain amount of money, and a talent was about worth about six thousand days' wages. So you multiply that by what the first man had, five talents, and he had quite a bit of money. And Jesus is using, uh, of course, extravagant language, isn't he? Just like we, when, you know, I often say that when I'm giving an example in church of if you were given a billion dollars, nobody gets excited if they say, what would you do if you were given $20 today? Oh, we wouldn't wouldn't get very excited about that, would we? But if we say, what would you do if you had a million dollars right now? Well, the cogs would be turning and so on. And uh, Jesus is using this language, as he does in other places, to to describe the kingdom of God. We saw it back earlier in Matthew, where the kingdom of God is like a man in the field. And he's plowing, and he hits a 
he hits a treasure chest and he finds all his money and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. Uh, but So Jesus is using very extravagant language to get across this point that the kingdom of heaven is not an exaggeration. He's using uh, uh, money in a way of, and lots of it, to uh, build a bridge with people, to get their cogs going, to get their mind thinking. And of course, this parable is a continuation from the last parable. It's a, a different way, a slightly different way of looking at the same idea. Remember, the urgency with which Jesus is speaking here. He is only a short time, a day or even hours away from uh, from the final time of his, of his life, the final hours of his life. And as we saw last week, that is something that would impress itself upon us. If we only had hours to live, we would be thinking of what are the most important things that I can say to my family. You'd be telling them how much you love them and so on. You'd be telling, but you would be telling them other things like, here's how you can look after yourself. There's this bank account or there's this, there, here, the will is over there. And you'd be, you'd be repeating it again and again. Tell me what I told you yesterday. Where is it? Well, uh, I think you said, I don't want to hear about think. I want you to tell me where the will is. I want you to tell me what the password for my bank account is. Tell me those things. I want to hear them back. So you are going to great lengths to repeat and repeat and repeat uh, until those who are being left behind have no... uh, 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 They're not mistaken in the least about uh, what they must do after you are gone. Now Jesus is talking about not money. He's not talking about a bank account. He's talking about eternal life. And he's talking to a mixed multitude here, which symbolizes the church. In any given church, on any Sunday around the world, there is a mixed multitude of people, of believers and unbelievers. Those who, according to the uh, previous uh, uh, parable, some are foolish and some are wise. Some will listen and some will take for granted what they hear and not be prepared. And and so here with the parable of the talents, Jesus takes that idea again and casts it in terms of uh, finances, in, in terms of servants being prepared for uh, his return. But at the end of the day, Jesus believes in judgment, doesn't he? He knows it. He's going to be there within hours. Within a day or so, he's going to be hanging on a cross. He knows that he's going to die. He knows why he is going to die. He knows at whose hands he is going to die. And that is at the hands of his Father, not just at the hands of the Romans or the Jews. He knows these things, and he knows the purpose of why these things are. He can read back into the Old Testament, and he can see himself there. He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. Jesus knows that judgment is coming. And when He looks at the people who are around Him, as I am looking at you this morning, 
He knows that judgment is coming, that we will all uh, stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that we will all give an account for what we've done with the gospel. And Jesus is like a father who is going uh, to die, drumming in to the minds of his family, of those in front of him, what is at stake. Why he is dying. And what that means for them. Are they taking it seriously? It's extraordinary, friends, that this is what Jesus is saying just short time before he goes to die. And if we are wise, we put ourselves back in this chapter and we take our part with that audience that Jesus is speaking to and we say, what am I doing with what Jesus has uh, said? Am I dealing seriously with these things? And so uh, the, the parables are really the same. You remember in the Bible, in, in the Old Testament, some, sometimes a king would have a dream and one night he would dream this and another night he would dream something seemingly different. And then the, the person would say, the dreams are one dream. And this is what they mean. It means one thing. And Jesus is taking these parables. And he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. But really, at the end of the day, what's at stake is a matter of urgency that he's trying to communicate to us. And so what does he say? He says the kingdom of heaven is like a, a, a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents. To another two. To another one, each according to his ability. And they went away. Like I said, each talent is a, an incredible amount of money. But the, the idea for talents here, though it has come to mean ability, is, is not taken in that way in the Bible. Sometimes we think, well, I have a, a talent for fixing computers, and God wants me to use my talent to fix computers. Now, that is true, that God, if God has given us talents in this world, that we are to use them for His glory. But the chief overriding idea in these parables is that the riches, the talents, although it has morphed into this idea of natural ability as it's borrowed into the English, it, it wasn't that way in the original. Jesus is not talking about natural abilities, but the endowments that God has given to his people. That's why he says earlier on, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Or Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we get an idea of what he is talking about here when we explore Paul, the language that Paul uses when he's describing the Jews. Right? He says, they have advantages. Now, we live with advantages, don't we? Needless to say. 
we are advantaged over people living in Ethiopia, living in, even people living in the Fraser Valley of British Columbia. We have uh, privileges of people living in North Korea or communist countries. We have advantages. But Paul is saying the Jews had advantages. Now, he says in chapter 3 of Romans, what advantage has the Jew? Now, who is he talking about here? What was going on with the Jews at the time? They were subjugated, weren't they? They were ruled over by the Romans. They weren't a free people. And soon... Forty years later, they would be utterly destroyed. The city would be destroyed by the rule. So Paul is, but yet Paul says to them, what advantage have they? Much in every direction. Up and down, around and across, and over and out, and in every possible way. Why? Because Paul is saying the advantages that the Jews have are spiritual. Now that should speak to us in our daily lives that whatever disadvantages we may think we have, whether it be health or troubles at home or troubles at work or whatever it is, we can still say of ourselves, what advantage does the disabled congregation have? Much in every way. Though they be utterly cast down and crushed and (laughs) dominated by a foreign power or whatever, thankfully we're not, But still, we are advantaged in every direction. Now, how does Paul describe those advantages? To begin with, he says, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Yeah, but Paul, what about the Romans? They they really give them grief. What about the the Medo-Persian Empire? What about the Babylonians? They just almost crushed them and caused them to be extinct. Forget about it, Paul says. They have the the Word of God. They have the oracles of God. Then what does he say? Chapter 9. Why is he brokenhearted over the Jews? That they are rejecting Jesus. He says they had, it's because they had advantages in every possible way. They were enriched by God. They were enriched by this Master who had given them every opportunity. Now listen to how Paul describes it. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. They were adopted by God out of a pagan country and said, you are my child, you are my son. To them belong the glory. What's that? The glory of God. Remember when the glory of God filled the temple and there was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day? The glory of God. What else? The covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David, again and again entering into this intimate relationship, saying, I will be God to you and to your children. If you sin, I will forgive you. If you're carried off into a distant land and from there you call upon me, I will deliver you. 
I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. To them belong the giving of the law. The Ten Commandments written by the finger of God and encased in the Ark of the Covenant in, in, in that box. The Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, the Ark of the Testimony of God's love and God's heart and God's forgiveness. Advantage, advantage, advantage. To them belong the, pay, the worship in other words, the temple. And every time a, a lamb or a bull was brought in and the priest laid its hands on the bull and confessed the sins of Israel and then the bull was slaughtered or the scapegoat was driven out into the wilderness and consumed, there went to the sins of Israel. God is saying, advantage Israel again. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The, the stories of God's deliverance. The stories of faith overcoming. The stories of God's commitment to His people. From them, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. The greatest of all advantages to Israel from their very line came Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was born in the city of David. Born in Bethlehem, rather. The city of David. Advantages all over the place. These are the things that Jesus is principally talking about here. And to some, there's been more light and advantage given than others. As is reflected here in the, the five and the two and the one. More opportunities, more privileges, and so on and so forth. But what did the Pharisees do? They took these things and they set them aside. And they said, we will do it ourselves. Paul, at the end of Romans, there he talks about how tragic it was because it says, the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as it were, based on works. So that the God's promise to Abraham, His covenant with Abraham, where it was a gracious covenant, say, I will forgive all of your sins, I will receive you as my child, just by your faith in Me. And everyone who follows Abraham in that way is a child of Abraham. They said, no. We're good enough. We're righteous enough. And so God, in giving the Jews the wealth and the riches, all the advantages, you see, that's why Paul is so grieved in Romans 9. Look at what he says. 
I am speaking the truth. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He's brokenhearted because he says, look at the wealth you've been given. Look, your master entrusted you with all of these promises and stories and and the law and the glory and from your line, from your own body, in the city of David was born a Savior who was Christ the Lord. And angels attended His birth. And He performed miracles in your land for three years, up and down, along lakes and rivers, and in cities and in the country and in houses and on mountaintops. And He preached to you the Kingdom of God a treasure far greater than any talents, no matter how we may measure them. That's why Paul calls the Gospel the unsearchable riches of Jesus. That's the advantage that is laid before us. Now, he gives to one certain amount, he gives to another a certain amount. And they take that And they go out and invest it. They put it to work. You see, that's what happens when the Gospel gets a hold of you. That's what happens when grace gets a hold of you. You can't sit still. If you have truly been delivered from your sins, you know the wealth that God has showered into your life and into your heart. You can't sit on it. You immediately start looking around at your family your wives, your husbands, your sons, your daughters, your neighbors. You can't be satisfied with, the, with what your, your bank account drawing moths and dust and the, all the rest of it. You're, you're starting to take all the blessings that God has given to you and reinvest it in the lives of others. That's what these men did. And to a certain Levels, some are, are, are given and entrusted with more than others. But nevertheless, these first two men show the joy of what they've been given. My master has, is good. He's generous. He's entrusted me with this. And I see where it's coming from. It's coming from a good heart. And out of love, you see. Out of love, they take that. And there is this great joy. Not long after, the master of those two servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. There's a joy in what we see going on here. One person has said that the man's eyes are sparkling. He's bubbling over with enthusiasm. He's thrilled and as it were invites his master to start counting. Isn't that what we find in the parable of the man who's out with a plow in the field and all of a sudden he hits a box, hits a chest, clears it off, and there it is. And he says, and in his joy... He sells all that he has. He sells the car. He sells the cat. He sells the house. He sells whatever he has to get rid of. And he buys that field. 
Again, Jesus is using this language of wealth and riches to describe the wealth of God's salvation, the wealth of the privileges that He has given to His people, the Jews. If they had only opened their eyes and looked around and seen the temple, the law, the promises, the patriarchs, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of David, and all these things, it should not have fostered within them a spirit of this God is a cruel God. But this, this God is a gracious God. This is God is a holy God. This God is a forgiving God. And I will make use of all of those things. And I will tell of these things. I will not hide it. But I will invest it. I will take the knowledge of that and I will st- turn it over into the lives of others. That's why King David, if you read through the Psalms, he was not satisfied. He said, you know, Lord, bless and pity us. Shine on us with your face that the nations may know. It's Psalm 51 that speaks of David's forgiveness of his sin with Bathsheba when he had committed adultery with her. He realizes the wealth of forgiveness that he has felt from God. Then he says, Lord, Cause these bones that you have broken to rejoice, that I may tell of your righteousness, that I may tell of your salvation. What's David doing? He's taking his five talents and he's investing them and getting five talents more. Someone else has been given two talents. They're, they, for joy and excitement, invest that in the lives of others and they receive five talents more receive two talents more. Out of joy, you see. And there's a joyous element here. Master, you delivered to me. Here I've made two more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Now, I'm not saying that our homes and our money don't enter into that. Absolutely they do. But what I'm saying is principally the, the, the talents here refer to the privileges of the Gospel that God has given to us. And out of that, we, say, we pull out our wallet and say, this salvation has got to be know, made known to others in other parts of the land. So I will buy Bibles. I will support a missionary. I may give money to Samaritan's Purse. I may do whatever I can to make known this truth. That's why Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach the Gospel. God has given me talents. In other words, He's given me bags to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Woe is me if I sit on that. If I do nothing with it. This is where these men are coming from. The Heidelberg Catechism says that it's impossible that those who are in Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. See, this is, this is what is happening in the lives of these men. They've been given 
so much. They've been entrusted with so much. God has blessed them in so many ways, including those things that I've read off about Paul. To them belong the patriarchs, the promises, the giving of the law, the worship. And from their race came Jesus Christ who did miracles in their midst. Writer of Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which was testified to by Jesus and the doing of miracles to prove who He was. To prove the authenticity of His ministry and His person. And that He had come to save people from their sins. How do we then improve upon that? How do we respond to these Privileges that God has bestowed upon us. We might say of each one of us, what Paul said of the Jews, what advantage does that congregation in disabled have? Much in every way. For most of them have been brought up in a Christian home. They've been given a godly example. They've been prayed over. They've been taken to church. They've heard the Gospel. They've been given advantages beyond most people in the world. But then, what we are to rightly see and hopefully see is the, the people who have been brought up in those circumstances say, yes, thanks be to God who has privileged me, who has given me the, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I'm not going to hide it away. I'm first going to believe in it and soak myself in it. I'm going to thank God for it. I am with my mouth going to confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in my heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And I'm going to confess Him to those around me. So that when God, when Jesus returns, He will see not only have, have I the, 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 the blessings that He has entrusted me with, but investing that in the lives of others, I have gained five more. Or I have gained two more. And to hear those words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. You have believed. You have, you have a, 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 a embraced those privileges that you were given as a child. That you were brought up with. That you were taught. You were prayed over. And you, you, you believed that truth. And after having believed it, you were not satisfied to sit on it. But you began to marshal all the resources that you had, all that you were, to say, for me to live is Christ. And therefore, my money, my home, my car, my where everything I do now, I put it before the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And through that, when I stand before my Lord, I don't simply have what He has given, but I, I have put it to work. And I say, here Lord, and here Lord, here is what these five talents have gained. This is what these two talents have gained. But the wicked servant, he is of a different ilk altogether. He starts off not knowing who the Master is. He starts off not by, by tagging the Master as being hard. 
I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. MacArthur says here that his view of the Master maligns him as a cruel and worthless Ruthless opportunist, reaping and gathering what he had no right to claim as his own. He has a he starts off with a particular view of God. Many people have that view of God. You remember Luther, who before his conversion, who was a very religious man, religious but lost, he was asked if he loved God, and he said, No, sometimes I hate God. Because he saw God as trying to ex take something out of him that he could not give him. This God wants me to be righteous and perfect. I can't give that. He must be some cruel monster that would exact those things from me. I can't do it. Yes, sometimes I hate God, he could say. Until he came to realize the true value of what was entrusted to him in the Gospel. When he came to know and see what the purpose of Jesus' death really was, that though we can't keep the law, Jesus kept it for us. And that we enter into God's good graces through the work of Jesus. So that we can say, now I love God and I love His law. And I love His people. And I want to do His will. And when I fail, I know His forgiveness and His mercy. That's the difference. But this wicked servant didn't do that. He started off from a place of not knowing the Master at all. You are hard. You are unforgiving. You take what does not even belong to you. Lots of people have that view. What's mine is mine. I got it by my own work. There's no sense of give us this day our daily bread with these people. No, I got it. I inherited it. I worked hard for it. It's mine. It's not God's. It's not anybody's. It's mine. And this God just wants, wants, wants. That's that's where He starts off from. And yet the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes to us from God. The breath that we draw, the the strength in our bodies, the goodness, the sun that causes the crops to grow in the field are from God. This wicked servant is charging this master. He says, you deserve nothing. You are hard. Here, take back what you want, what, what, what you have given, and go and leave me be. See, the master represents God here. And the, 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 the servant represents people who are unbelieving, unresponsive to all the advantages that God has given to them in their lives. They don't see it. They don't understand it. I hope that's not the way it is with you today. You've perhaps grown up in the church, grown up in a Christian home, had all the advantages of people praying for you and exhorting you, pleading with you. And to play it safe, you simply take what you have hide it away and hope that if you're able just to give it back to God at the end, not do any damage, no, you haven't done any good, but you haven't done any harm either, you've given it back, that that's all 
is required of you. One person has said that we are not told that the servant was a murderer or a thief or even wasteful. He didn't waste what was given, but he did nothing with it, and that was his ruin. He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a thief. But still, he comes under the condemnation of the Master. Isn't that incredible? And he's confined to outer darkness and eternal judgment. We need to realize then what Jesus is saying to us here this morning. To see who we are and where we are. As the Jews were commanded and and impressed upon by Jesus to to see what what they had. And, And Paul, look at the Jews. Look at the advantages they have. And what are they doing? What are they doing with those advantages? They're rejecting their Messiah. They're rejecting their Savior. Paul is brokenhearted with the madness and the insanity of it. And yet, friends, it's played out in churches all over the world every day, much like our own. And I pray to God this morning that you would see how advantaged you are. Yeah, you don't have all the money you want or the job that you want. And all these dreams are maybe a little elusive and they're not... And you're focusing on what you don't have in life. You want more of this or more of that. But forget all that. Paul says that's not where your ultimate advantages lie anyway. You're to see where you are and who you are and where you've been brought up and the advantages that you've been given. The wealth that God has placed in your lap and say, God has been rich toward me. Five talents. Thousands of days of work do not even compare to the wealth that God has given to me in the Gospel. And I will receive it. I will believe it. I will rejoice in it. And I will with my mouth tell others of it. And I will seek to bring as many with me as possible. I will Give God liberty when it comes to my money, when it comes to my time, when it comes to my prayers. I will pour my whole being in so that I may not simply give back what God has given me, but I will give it back with return in my life. That I might hear those words, Well done, good 